It's been seven years in the making, and MIFID II finally comes into force this January. One of the guiding principles and an expansion from MIFID I is best execution. On today's show, we'll talk about best execution reporting with our guest Alex Wolkoff, a fixed trading community contributor and director at Apps Broker. Welcome to the IRP Journal Podcast, where independent research providers discuss their views on asset allocations, capital markets, fundamentals, technicals, and the macro economy with your host, Steve Edge. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Steve Edge. Today, I'm joined by Alex Wolkoff, a fixed trading community contributor and director at Apps Broker. The Fixed Protocol community recently published its recommended practices for best execution reporting as required by MIFID II Regulatory Technical Center 27 and 28, of which Alex was a key contributor. Welcome, Alex, and thanks for coming to the podcast. Yeah, good morning, Steve. Glad to be here. Terrific. Well, let, let's just jump right into it. Um, first question, why should the buy side even care about reporting other than being obligated to? Um. I think this is uh, something that the buy side should care about because um, not only are they having to go and produce reports for their clients uh, and they're going to be judged by their clients on these reports, but also because um, they need to also pay attention to the other reports being generated both by their peers to give you um, as a buy-side firm, uh, some sense as to what the competition is doing. But there's also uh, a certain amount of reporting that needs to be done by the execution venues that the buy-side use as well. And there is actually an obligation uh, we know within the regulation that says uh, amongst other things, you should look at the best execution reports created by the trading venues. Um, but also there's some useful information there about the instruments that they trade and therefore an idea about where liquidity exists as well. And, and that's what the intention was of the uh, European Commission when they started creating these rules and ESMA when they put more detail in. Um, I was I looked at the report myself and um, there was a difference between uh, reporting obligations of RTS 28 and Delegated Act 2398, Article 65 of MIFIR. Can you explain what those differences are? Yes, actually, this was uh, quite interesting. It, it caught the community out because everyone thought that the buy-side um, obligations for reporting and, in fact, the, the sell-side for investment firms was entirely encapsulated within RTS 28. RTS 28 is about people reporting where they execute client orders on trading venues. Now, the delegated act that came uh, a little bit later, uh, and especially Article 65, um, Paragraph 6, then said, well, actually, we're interested in where you send client orders to brokers as well. So in simple terms, RTS 28 is about where you send uh, orders to trading venues, and the delegated acts are Article 65.6 asks for a report about where you send orders to other brokers. It's as simple as that. Well, let me ask you, Tim, why did the Global Technical Committee put together this best practices for best execution document in the first place? 
Well, uh, one of the things that we noticed was uh, that RTS-27 and RTS-28, uh, when they first came out, were pretty explicit about the sort of information that they wanted to be included in these reports. But actually, the technical format of that um, wasn't specified at all. So if you look at other reporting or other um, transparency requirements, they're pretty detailed about what they're expecting to see and the format of that. But with RTS-27 and RTS-28 and delegated acts, there was no detail on the technical format. And, and this is what the fixed trading community do, is they come up with technical standards for that. But as we were starting to look at that, um, we realized that it wasn't, relative, it wasn't straightforward um, about who is meant to be producing an RTS-27 report, who is meant to be producing the RTS-28 report, who's meant to be producing the Delegated Act report, and when. So we actually had to put in an extra section up front which talked about the workflow uh, scenarios. Uh, and so uh, the uh, GTC, or the Global Technical Committee, decided that the working group needed to build some recommended practices first before we actually came up with a technical specification as well. Yes, those working flows were quite useful when I was going through the document. Uh, well done on that. Well, how do we know if we should uh, be reporting under RTS-27 or RTS-28 or DA-2398? Well, that's what the, uh, the document's all about. And, and in principle... Uh, when we look at RTS-27 reports, that's about um, execution venues providing liquidity to the market. So execu execution venues includes the likes of regulated markets, multilateral trading facilities, those MTFs, or organized trading uh, facilities, which are a, a new thing under MIFID-2 as well. But also anyone who's providing liquidity to the market. Um, as, a, as an investment firm. So we also have to include market makers, systematic internalizers, uh, and liquidity providers. Um, and all of those uh, providers need to go and uh, report under RTS-27. RTS-28 and the Delegated Acts is firmly the responsibility of investment firms, and that is about uh, routing orders, as I said before, either to the market, uh, either to a market or to a broker, um, as we distinguished before. I, and, and when you start looking at it on an asset-by-asset asset basis, and then also start looking at it from a, a, a trading style or a trading strategy, uh, then it gets a little bit more complicated. And that's why we produced... Um, nearly 20 workflows in our document to be more explicit about when you create those reports and who creates those reports. Understood. So RTS-27 is more for the sell side and RTS-28 for the buy side in general? Well, the, 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 the sell side also need to produce RTS-28 reports as well because they are investment firms and, and they generally route orders to trading venues as well. So... Uh, um, uh, and, and indeed, they may end up actually routing orders to other brokers. Um, so we need to be careful there. Fair enough. Well, before we continue, I'd like to pause here and ask a trivia question, which I will answer at the end of the podcast. 
What two firms sent and received the first fixed protocol message? Stay tuned. Answer at the end of the podcast. Well, jumping back into the uh, conversation, Alex, um, what are the differences between MIFID 1 best execution and MIFID 2? Are they substantial? Uh, on the face of it, um, it didn't seem that much apart from the reporting obligation until we actually started looking into the detail. Uh, we, we looked at MIFID 1 and, and uh, over 10 years ago, looking at the principles of best execution. Um, there was an idea that we were meant to be producing as an industry um, uh, a best execution policy and then providing evidence on how we were um, complying with that best execution policy. And it did take some time before the regulators like the FCA started paying attention to how people were interpreting uh, the MIFID-1 legislation. And we certainly saw uh, an intent that, number one, MIFID-1 should be better uh, monitored uh, and uh, more strictly controlled on the best execution side. And there were some uh, recommendations made by the FCA, for example. But when we came to MIFID-2, uh, and certainly in the regulatory technical standards, there was an expectation that the, 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 the standards should be uh, uh, increased, uh, that the expectation that um, when looking at each different asset class, we needed to make sure that the policy was appropriate to the asset class being traded. And, and I don't think that was explicitly looked at in MIFID 1. Um, and when you start looking at the reports and some of the qualitative aspects of the RTS 28 and, and the Delegated Act reports, there is much more detail there about, uh, or, or much more detail required about which execution venue you are going to select and making sure that that's public on your website as well. So I, I think there is a um, there is a substantial difference uh, from 2007 and uh, where we're heading to. That's in part due to the regulators now starting to take a sterner view on the MIFID-1 requirements and then a, an extra bit with MIFID-2 as well. Well, how do you see these uh, reporting obligations changing or potentially changing the industry as a whole? Well, let's start with the, um, how do you see these reporting obligations changing? Um, we've already highlighted when putting the workflows together that some of the reports may not be as useful as they should be. Um, and I'll give you a really good example for that. Um, this this came up when we started talking about trading fixed income instruments. And in, in, let's start, let's start with bonds, for example. Um, typically, if a bank uh, is offering uh, liquidity to a client uh, in a particular bond, uh, they will either get approached directly. Um, uh, we call that voice trading. Um, so a uh, buy side firm uh, calls or sends a message to their uh, bank and says, please, can you give me a price on this bond? Um, the other alternative is that um, they also do that through an MTF like Bloomberg, Tradeweb or Market Access. 
it's still the same bank that's providing the liquidity. It's just a decision of whether they decide to do it through uh, an MTF or whether they do it directly. However, RTS 27 reports, which is meant to provide the market with better visibility over where liquidity exists and who's providing it and how well they're performing, actually requires Bloomberg to produce that report um, if it's done on the Bloomberg MTF rather than the bank behind it. So in general, while the relationship still exists directly um, between the bank and the buy side, it's the MTF providing the report uh, rather than the, the bank. And, and uh, in that case, uh, I can see that while the legislation as it stands uh, requires Bloomberg to produce that RTS 27 report, that they may need to adjust that uh, in later versions. Um, and then once we've actually ironed out uh, that type of wrinkle, and, the, and there are a few others that we've highlighted in our document, I think these reports start to become quite useful. The other um, challenge will be uh, to um, be able to aggregate information across the trading venues, and we hope that producing a standard that the industry can use will then start meaning that people are able to look at uh, the liquidity providers um, and in conjunction with things like our pre- and post-trade transparency under MIFID 2 as well, we start to go and see more competitive pricing uh, across um, across the market, especially in the OTC markets. Well, do you think the reporting obligations serve to support best execution or have they gone too far? I mean, if I was a passive manager, I would owe have very little reporting obligations, but if I'm a high-frequency uh, market maker, uh, the reporting obligations are going to be vast, and um, it's going to be expensive. I mean, are these obligations just creating more cost? Oh, they're certainly creating more cost. In conjunction with uh, some of the other record-keeping requirements, um, it's, it's introduced a level of cost um, to a lot of banks, um, which they which they hadn't anticipated and in particular i've um, always uh, considered that uh, certainly the rts 27 reporting um is actually really difficult to do that it's it's probably relatively straightforward for the electronic markets but if you're providing liquidity um over the phone or through messenger we're having to capture the same sort of information that's collected on electronic platforms and that's actually quite difficult because uh, it, it's, it's difficult to persuade a, a sales desk to write down uh, every single aspect that's required by RTS 27. I'll give you a good example, Steve. Um, one of the attributes that RTS 27 looks for, for every single instrument that's traded by a bank, they want to know the average time between somebody asking for a quote and for the bank actually providing a quote back. And so that means that some poor salesman is actually on a desk having to somehow capture the point that he's being asked for a price and then the time he's actually providing that price. And so technology is having to be spent to go and do that, um, that, 
that data capture and uh, it, it's expensive and, and, and also disruptive. However, um, I think if people start to use a standard um, and uh, we are trying to push the adoption of the, the fixed reporting uh, standard for RTS 27 and RTS 28 and the delegated acts as well, that means that while that's a difficult thing to do, this is actually aggregating some really useful information about, number one, who's providing liquidity, and number two, how fast they are at being able to provide that liquidity as well. And actually, if somebody is able to aggregate that information uh, effectively, this could be some really useful information. It sure does seem like an opportunity for the data aggregators and the database providers. Now, what are some of the challenges with interpretation of the regulations at the European level and at the country level? Yes, this is um, uh, quite an interesting point. Um, and, and we have to bear in mind um, that we have two types of legislation here coming through in, um, in January of next year. One which is um, uh, MIFID two, which is a directive. Um, and then we've got uh, MIFIR, which is regulation. And then we've got the layers of detail underneath. Now, the majority of the detail is regulation as well. So the, there's a subtle difference, but an important difference. The principle of best execution sits in the directive. So that means that each of the European countries need to go and interpret the directive into their local law uh, before it's actually implemented on the 3rd of January. However, um, the detail of the reporting, um, uh, RTS 27, RTS 28, um, and the delegated acts, that, the act, that actual specific article comes under regulation as well, is directly implemented by Brussels uh, and, by, and, and uh, monitored by ESMA. So that means that... Um, there should be a level playing field across the board as far as the reporting. However, we have noticed that when we did uh, talk to a few of the regulators uh, about interpretation of the regulatory technical standards, the regulators still realized that there were some subtle points um, and uh, uh, subtle items on the workflow um, uh, within our documents, they weren't necessarily uh, in agreement on, but it was only one or two minor points. So there, there is still um, room for interpretation by the regulator about how the regulation from Brussels gets directly implemented. So still some challenges there. Well, thank you, Alex. That's all the time we have for this show. Thanks a lot again for your insights. Very informative indeed. If you would like to review the recommended practices for best execution reporting, please do visit the Fixed Protocol website at fixedtrading.org. Before we get to the trivia answer, I would like to ask our listeners if they could take a minute to provide some feedback and rate our podcast. This is invaluable and will shape the podcast in the future. And of course, if your colleagues might be interested to hear this podcast, please do pass it along. Now on to the trivia answer. 
We asked earlier what two firms sent and received the first FIX protocol message. The answer? Fidelity Investments and Solomon Brothers back in 1992. One of the pioneering moments in electronic trading indeed. Well, that's our show for this week. Again, please provide some feedback and rate our show. Let your colleagues know if you think our podcast is worthwhile. And don't forget to register at our website, irpjournal.com, to get the latest free issue of the IRP Journal for qualified buy sides. Have a great day, and I hope all your trades outperform.